Well, let's go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 25 to 27 this morning, but I want to start just by reading back in the context, starting at chapter 11, verse 20. So Matthew 11, starting at verse 20, Jesus is speaking here. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You know, sometimes when we study Scripture, we'll discover doctrines maybe that make us uncomfortable. There's teachings in Scripture that are repulsive to the natural man and that go against our human reasoning and against our pride. See, the Word of God confronts us and it corrects us. It challenges us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. All Scripture teaches and reproves and corrects and trains us, and sometimes the lessons are harder than others. And in the verses following 2 Timothy 3.16, right, really in the, right in the next verses, chapter 4 is the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. In 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Then he says, for the time will come when they will not, or when people will not endure sound teaching. And what I want you to see from that is that sometimes sound doctrine needs to be endured. Sometimes it's it's not in season. Uh, Sometimes it's... It's hard to have our pre-existing beliefs challenged. It's hard to be corrected, even at the best of times. I remember sitting beside a friend in seminary chapel a few years ago. It would have been um, my second or third year, but he was just kind of starting out. And I asked him how it was going. And I'll never forget his response that day. He he said to me, and he was a very... uh, happy, fun kind of a guy, and he's like, Mike, 
everything I believed was wrong. (laughs) And he was just shaken to the core. The entire foundation of his life was being destroyed and rebuilt as he was being corrected and challenged and rebuked by the word of God. And so he was understandably shaken. And some of you may have, maybe to a lesser degree, but some of you may have felt that way just being part of our church for the last couple of years. You know, we, we do things differently. We teach differently. Um, you know, and you, and you have to filter through your life and discern what's biblical and, and what's not. And that can be a difficult process. But it's worth it because our lives need to be founded on the truth of God's Word. We're even commanded in Ephesians 4.23 to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Or Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all or in all wisdom. For the word to dwell in us richly, it means that it's impacting our lives and it means it's, we're, we're letting it teach us and correct us. And this process of interacting with the word and letting it reshape our lives by the truth, sorry, this process of, of interacting with the, the word and letting it reshape our lives by the truth, that's what we call spiritual warfare. That's biblical spiritual warfare. Truth destroys false beliefs and our lives are rebuilt on new foundations. And, and, and to see that, I want you to turn to second Corinthians chapter 10. And, and I'm going to, you know, as we kind of make our way to the, the truth that's in our text, I just want to really spend some time and quite a bit of time actually just introducing this and, and kind of preparing you for this. So go to second Corinthians Chapter 10. And look at verse, we'll start reading at verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So Paul is waging war and he's waging war not with human weapons according to the flesh, but he's waging war with divine power. And so what is this or or what are these weapons of divine power? And we can answer that by seeing what they do. Paul says they destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And they take prisoners, they take thoughts captive, they take thoughts prisoner in order to make them obedient to Christ. See, the Corinthians were divided about, and they were being influenced by worldly wisdom. And Paul is taking down those strongholds, he's destroying those arguments, he's capturing those thoughts in order to bring the church back to obedience to God and His Word. And so sometimes things need to be torn down in our lives. Understandings of doctrines and truths need to be torn down before they can be rebuilt back up. And that tearing down process, that that being taught by the truth, needs to be endured. We need to be corrected. We need to be, um, sometimes our whole foundations need to come down 
before we can start to build up again. Our minds need to be renewed by the Word of God. Now, as we think about our minds being renewed by the Word of God, I think there's really, at least in my opinion, there's two doctrines that are are really most difficult for us to deal with where strongholds of our minds are maybe the most fortified and, and the most, um, uh, you know, spiritual divine weapons need to tear those things down. I think those two doctrines, I would say, that are most repulsive to the natural man are the doctrine of divine judgment and the doctrine of divine sovereignty in salvation. I called this message, by the way, I called it... Uh, Comfort in the Father's sovereign grace. And so the two doctrines that are most difficult, we find them both kind of connected in our text. Divine judgment and sovereignty and salvation. Divine judgment, God's wrath against sin and sinners, is a, a difficult truth to understand and to bear. The doctrine of hell. Eternal suffering for sin is a teaching of Scripture that is hard and men don't like that teaching. And even for myself to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly uncomfortable preaching on hell. I, I believe in hell, but I, I'm always reminded whenever I come across these texts that of, of really dark days in my Christian life when I really wrestled with the truth that God sends people to hell forever for their sin. And the other doctrine that's, that's difficult that I think is hard to embrace is the doctrine of election and tied with that, the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation. And I'm talking about here the scriptural idea that God is able to save whoever he will. Now our text again has both. We have uh, the doctrine of divine judgment tied right with the doctrine of election. And what I want to do is I want to introduce, as we kind of, again, approach our text, I want to introduce what Matthew doesn't. I want to spend some time just kind of laying a foundation for the truths that we see in our text. You see, I I believe that Scripture teaches that no sinner is so hard or so deceived or so stubborn or so lost or so dead in trespasses and sins that God is unable to save him or her. I believe God could save, if he if He chose to, he could save every rebellious, hell-deserving sinner on the planet. See, I, I believe that Scripture teaches that God could, but that God doesn't. Now, you have to be convinced by Scripture yourselves. And, and, and so as we think about this, there's really only four options. Okay, there's, there's really only four options when we think about how salvation could work. The first one is that God could give nobody an opportunity to be saved. Okay, you're, you're going to have to maybe think with me. This, In fact, this whole message, I think you're going to have to really just kind of think with me and follow. And you might even have to listen to it more than once. But the first option is God could give nobody an opportunity to be saved. God could save no one and present the gospel to no one. There could have been no gospel. There could have been no Jesus Christ coming to save the world from sin. And that would have been perfectly just of God to do. God owes salvation to nobody. 
And he could have left us to ourselves. He could have left us to judgment. There could have been no Christ, no salvation, no gospel. And praise God, that option we know God didn't choose. And there is a way of salvation. So the second option then is that God could have provided an opportunity for everyone to be saved. Okay, there, there could have been an opportunity for every single person to be saved. And this would have been, it, it would at least seem very gracious of God. He gave an opportunity to everyone. And I think that's what very many people assume to be the case. Now, the, the problem with that view is that if we understand the depravity of man rightly, an opportunity for salvation really isn't enough. We are slaves of sin. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. God needs to do more than just give us an opportunity. God needs to save us and open our eyes. And also, if you just think about this, not everyone has an opportunity. Not everyone is going to hear the gospel. Now, that should really motivate us to get out into the world and preach the gospel. But if you think about it, throughout history, not everyone has had an opportunity. And so, really, number two isn't a full option. And so, I kind of came up with number 2A, which is that God could have provided an opportunity for some people to be saved, or even we might want to rephrase it like this because maybe it sounds more comfortable for us. God could have provided an opportunity for many people to be saved, but not all people because we know that not all people are going to hear the gospel and that's the only way that someone can get saved. So option 2A, which is going to be our new option 2 then, God could have provided an opportunity for some people to be saved. The third option, as we think about this, is that God could have provided everything necessary to actually save some people. Okay, God could have provided everything necessary to actually save some people. God overcomes their hostility. He softens their heart. He opens their eyes. He regenerates them. He makes them alive with Christ and he saves them. The father then in this, in this number three option, the father chose some people before the foundation of the world. The son died for those people on the cross about 2000 years ago. And the Holy Spirit in time regenerates them, draws them to Christ and saves them so that they will ultimately be with God in heaven one day. And so the third option, God could have provided everything necessary to actually save some people. And then there's a fourth option. God could have provided everything necessary to actually save all people. And it would have been the same as number three, except that this would have been for all people. Now we know that God doesn't save all people. We know that there is a divine judgment, that there's going to be some people in hell. And we know, and so that means option four is out. And we know as well that... um We know as well, I got, I should just read it out of my notes here. We know as well that he has provided a way of salvation. And so option one is out, right? That's not, it's not that uh, God's not going to save anyone. So, so that really leaves option two and option three. Again, option two, God could have provided an opportunity for some people to be saved or option three, God could have provided everything necessary to actually save some people. And so the question is, as we think about this, does God merely provide an opportunity for salvation or does God provide actual salvation? Now, 
As we come to this, I don't believe, and, and, and I could be wrong, but I don't believe I've ever addressed this before in our church. So, you know, maybe we're, we've been accused of kind of focusing on this or whatever. I, as far as I know, as far as I can re- recall, I don't think we've ever really addressed this at Grace Bible Fellowship. And I admit, these are some difficult questions. Our goal is to be informed on this, not from our emotions, not from what we think is fair, or, or really not from what we think at all, wh- whether we think it's gracious or, or what we think. Our goal is to be informed from Scripture. What does Scripture say about these options? Now, if we're going to be biblical, if we're going to be biblical, we have to believe in the doctrine of election. Now, that might maybe surprise somebody, but do you know that every, everyone who believes the Bible believes in election? Everyone who believes the Bible believes in election. And you know why that is? Is because the Bible talks about election. And so let's go and let's just look at a couple of verses here. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 first of all. Ephesians 1 Starting at verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us, there's that word, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now there we have the verb to choose um, and we have the, the, the word there predestined in verse 5. He chose us and he predestined us. Those two things go together. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And of course you ladies were... Studying Thessalonians this year, we're going to see it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by the Lord, that He has chosen you. He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so Paul says, God, the Father has chosen you, Thessalonians. You are loved by the Lord. And the reason I know that is because when I preached the gospel, it came to you not only in just words, but it came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. They were convinced by the truth, and Paul thanks God because that was God's work in their lives. Now go to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. I'm I'm not supposed to preach these. I'm just supposed to show you them right now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, he he comes back to this and he says, but we, uh, verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you 
as the first fruits to be saved, like the first people to be saved. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And then in verse 14, he says, to this, and I think that refers to this salvation, to this salvation, he called you through our gospel. We're going to look at that word called a little bit today, but to this salvation, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so everyone who believes the Bible believes something about election. Because really, like it or not, the Bible talks about election. God chose some, and he he chooses them, according to 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he chooses them to be saved. But God doesn't only choose, he also calls. And again, in verse 14, to this, he called you through our gospel, And the purpose of that call is so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so scripture speaks of a call that results in salvation. A call that results in salvation. And I want you to see that. Let's go first of all to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, in verse 39, Peter's preaching here. And he says that the promise of the Holy Spirit, in verse 39, uh, he says, the, For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so the promise is really offered to all. It's a, it's a message for all, even those who are far off. But ultimately, it's for those whom the Lord calls to himself. This is a call that brings somebody to salvation. And we see this throughout Scripture. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, we'll start, we'll we'll kind of go through Romans a little bit, but starting at verse 6, chapter 1 and verse 6, He says there, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so there's this call that Paul's talking about, a call that that brings somebody so that they belong to Jesus Christ, a call that, that makes them into saints. And then go to Romans chapter 8. And we know this scripture so well, Romans 8.28 But I wouldn't be surprised as we look at this that many of us have missed the description of a Christian here in Romans 8.28. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so there's two descriptions of a Christian here. The first one is a Christian is described as those who love God. And for those people who love God, all things work together for good for them. Now, the other description of Christians there is those who are called according to his purpose. Paul explains in in verse 29 with the word for. 
Why do, why do all things work together for good for these people who love God and who have been called according to His purpose? Why does all, everything work together for good? Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so note a third way that these people are described. They're, they're called there in verse 29, those whom He foreknew. Now these are people that God foreknew. It's not things about these people that God foreknew. It's the people themselves that God foreknew. God foreknew them and he called them according to his purpose and they love him. And that's really the chronological order of how that works out. God foreknew them before the foundation of the world. He knew them. Then he called them in time to salvation according to his purpose. And now they love him. That's a, a great description of a Christian. And these people, and only these people, God predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's why all things work together for good, because God had decided beforehand, that's what predestined means, God predestined that we, as believers, that we would be made like Jesus Christ. God decided beforehand because He knew us and He decided that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And therefore, God makes all things, whether good or bad in our lives, work together for the good of conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, Romans 8, 28 and 29 really hinges on predestination. God's action in predestining is the reason that those people will be conformed to the image of His Son. And now in verse 30, Paul's going to lay out a chain of events for these people. And this chain reaches from eternity past all the way into eternity future. And so in verse 30, look at it there. He says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, he also glorified. And so starting from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And there's really, there's so much to say about this verse, but there's one group of people in this text. And they're the same people that were already described in verses 28 and 29. These are people who are foreknown, who are called according to his purpose. These are people who at one point in their lives come to love God. And God predestined them. He decided beforehand that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. And these people that God predestined to this confirmation to Christ, this this transformation into Christ-likeness, these people God also called. Everyone who God predestined, He also called. It's the same group here. We could say it the other way. I think it might be helpful that way. We could say, Nobody who is called in this way was not predestined by the Father to be conformed to Christ. And so it's the same group of people. Those He predestined, He also called. Now we, we might ask then, well, what is this call? And I just want to leave that for now. Just we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this call. But these called people, whatever that is, God also justified. They are declared Righteous. They're, they're thus, the, all the ones who are thus called are also justified. 
And the same group who are justified, the same group who are declared righteous, are also glorified. That is, they're going to be fully conformed to the image of Christ in heaven. And so these people are going to attain to the glories of heaven. Everyone who is justified will be glorified. Now, Scripture is clear that justification is by faith. And so whatever this call is, whatever this calling is, it must produce or otherwise result in faith. It's a call that justifies, that makes someone belong to Christ. It's a call that makes somebody into a saint or causes them to be one who loves God when they were born into this world as haters of God. And so from this we can see then that salvation began in the mind of God in eternity past with his foreknowledge of certain people. He knew certain people before the foundation of the world. He knew us in his mind. And he chose those people to be holy and blameless before him in love. And he predestined them to adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And he he predestined them to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And then he called them through the gospel in such a way that they respond with repentance and faith. And then he justifies them and ultimately they will be glorified. And so we see that unbreakable chain there that really starts with predestination but results in a call that will ultimately get somebody into heaven. And so we're talking about this calling and I I want you to see now as we think about this call that that there's a connection between election and calling. And to see that, I want you to go one more chapter over. Go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I, I want to look at just verse 10, 11, 12. Romans 9 and verse 10, it says, but, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And so Rebecca was told that the older, remember she had twins, uh, Jacob and Esau, Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. And of course, that's not the normal way that it should work. But God told Rebecca this, that the older would serve the younger. And she was told that before the children were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And the reason that God told her is in the middle or the end of verse 11. Again, where 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 in the ESV, I think it helpfully kind of hyphenates or, or puts the long uh, em dash there to um, to kind of separate it. Verse eleven, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. And so God told her, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Notice that word "calls" there. God has a purpose of election. He has an electing purpose. And he chose Jacob, not Esau. And so he told Rebecca so that she would know that it was God's electing purpose for Jacob to be the, the one through whom the seed would come. And this choice was not because of works, 
God didn't cho- choose because of what uh, Jacob would do, but God chose because of him who calls. Of course, God is the one who calls. And so God elected in the past and he calls people to salvation in time. So there's this election in the past and a calling in time that draws people to salvation. And we see this same connection between election and calling in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so go ahead, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now this is, we're just in the introduction here, but don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up in time, okay? But, um, I, I'm hoping that some of these things will be kind of a helpful foundation for all of us. So let's, let's stop in that 1 Corinthians 1, we'll stop in at verse 9 really quick. It says, God is faithful by whom, so by God, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so there's this call that brought the Corinthians into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Now we'll move ahead to chapter 1, verse 22. Paul says, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so what's the difference here between these people? There's two groups of people here. There's Jews and Greeks in general and there's Jews and Greeks who, to whom the, the preaching of the gospel is the power of God. To one group, it's a stumbling block and folly. To the other group, the same message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the same message goes forth. Some people reject it and some people accept it. Some people think it's foolishness and folly. Some people think it's the power of God and the wisdom of God bringing them to salvation. And what's the difference? It's in verse 24, those who are called. And so those who are called in this way are going to be saved through that same gospel message. And so calling is what makes the gospel the power of God unto salvation when God does this call that brings somebody into fellowship with his son. And Paul goes on in verse 26, and here's where we're going to see this connection between election and calling. He says, for consider your calling, brothers, so consider, I think we could think about this as, as by saying, consider your salvation, brothers. Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." 
And so calling here again refers to salvation, but then Paul goes back behind calling to speak about God's choice in election. And he does all of this. He, he chooses and calls people of, of the kinds that he calls so that nobody would boast, so that there'd be no boasting in the presence of God for salvation. And then don't miss verse 30 because that's really important there. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God's choice, because of God's call, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so all of that then was a a long introduction and, and a bit of a, hopefully, a theological foundation for our text. Now, I told you that the two doctrines are the most difficult to deal with, areas perhaps which kind of go against the grain of our human wisdom. And we need to allow the Word of God to shape our view on election and calling on God's sovereignty and salvation. We need to allow the Word of God to shape our view on judgment as well. Both of those are difficult teachings. And as I said already, our text today is in the context of both of them. And it's especially today about God's sovereignty in salvation. You see, Jesus had just pronounced judgment on those cities where most of his miracles had been done. And I think we're going to Matthew chapter 11 here with that. He pronounced judgment on those cities where his miracles had been done. And although he had shown himself to be the Messiah by very many mighty works and powerful deeds, by, by gospel preaching and teaching that was unprecedented in the world, the people in those cities did not repent. And those cities would face a severe judgment on the day of judgment because of their failure to repent. Now, Matthew eleven sixteen to 19, that really laid out the rejection of John the Baptist and Jesus. And then in verses 20 to 24, which we looked at last time, laid out the judgment for that rejection. And now in verses 25 to 27, we're going to see how Jesus finds comfort in the midst of rejection. See, those cities have seen Jesus, but they haven't truly seen him. They saw his great deeds, but they missed his greatness. And so how does Jesus comfort himself in the midst of rejection? Let's read our text again, starting at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so in light of Jesus, or in light of Israel's failure to repent, Jesus pronounces judgment. And then He turns to His Father in prayer. And He leans on the sovereignty of God. He recognizes this rejection as the work of his father. And he sees it as the outworking of his father's plan. And he even praises or thanks the father for hiding these things from the wise and intelligent or the wise and understanding. And then in verse 27, he seems to exit that prayer and he says, in effect, what the father does in hiding or revealing, the son also does in hiding 
or revealing the Father. So the, the Father has a hiding and revealing of the Son, and then the Son also hides or reveals the Father. And so there's an intimate relational knowledge between the Father and the Son that no one can enter into unless both the Father and the Son welcome that person in. And Jesus is recognizing that in verse 27. The Father must reveal the Son, and the Son must reveal the Father. And Jesus then takes comfort in his relationship with the Father. They, they can't know me. He's re- if we could kind of put words in his mouth, they, they can't know me, he says to himself, unless the Father reveals me to them. And so he takes comfort in that fact. And, and then he says, you know, no one else may know me, but the Father, the Father knows me. And, and to him, that's enough. And so, so Jesus finds contentment in the fact that the Father knows him and that he knows the Father. And so our outline this morning is, is going to be this, two comforts for Jesus in the midst of rejection. Two comforts for Jesus in the midst of rejection. First of all, the Father's sovereign will is His comfort in verses 25 and 26. The Father's sovereign will. And then secondly, the Father's intimate fellowship in verse 27. The Father's intimate fellowship. And so the first comfort for Jesus in the midst of rejection, number one, the Father's sovereign will in verse 25 and 26. And and we'll start in verse 25. At that time... Jesus declared. And so at that time, sometime after Jesus denounced the cities, likely right after that, Jesus declared in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That word there translated thank or praise is, is actually a word normally translated confess. For example, and, and you probably know this verse, Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess, that's that same word, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus is making a confession. He's not confessing about sin. He's confessing or acknowledging the Father. And that's really the heart of worship or praise, this acknowledgement of the Father. Jesus is acknowledging the gracious will of His Father. He's acknowledging His Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. And so speaking the truth about God to God, that's really what worship is. Speaking the truth about God to God. And so here, confession or speaking the truth about God and praise are really one and the same. And so Jesus is confessing that God has hidden and revealed according to his will. And for Jesus, this is an act of worship. As what what Jesus is confessing here is an act of worship. Jesus is delighting in the truth that God is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is delighting in the truth that God is sovereign in salvation. Now, we might struggle with what our Lord says here, and, and we might, and, and, you know, I say, in a sense, I say that's, that's even okay if you're just trying to figure out what, what does Scripture actually teach. But we might struggle with this, but don't miss this here. Jesus praises God for this very thing. In fact, 
Scripture is always positive and thankful about election and regeneration, about election and calling. And so just to remind you back again, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is God blessed? Why is God to be praised? Because He blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Praise God. And the first thing that Paul thinks about is that He chose us in Christ. Or again in 1 Thessalonians 2, we give thanks to God always. Why? For we know, verse 4, brothers beloved by the God or brothers loved by God that He has chosen you. And so Paul is thankful that God has chosen. And then again, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Or we can consider Romans 11. And, and why don't you just go ahead and let's turn over to Romans chapter 11. And Paul here, after laying out God's electing purpose, we looked at Romans 9, remember? But in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, Paul is reflecting on God's electing purpose in salvation and the doctrine of reprobation, the, the fact that, that God saves and damns according to His will. And He has mercy on whom He has mercy. Paul's been talking about this, and right after that, Paul bursts into an expression of the highest praise in verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given to Him a gift that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things? To Him be glory forever Amen. Now that is not a lament. Paul sees God's electing love and even the other side of it as a reason to praise God for His rich wisdom and sovereign grace. And so Jesus is delighting in this truth that we're going to look at. And in our text, Jesus delights in this truth. He's praising God in what He says in verse 25 and 26. And first he describes his father as Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord here means one who is in charge by virtue of possession. See, God is the owner of heaven and earth. Lord also means one who's in a position of authority. God is the master of heaven and earth. It's an expression of the sovereignty of God. He's the ruler of heaven and earth. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and all deeps. In other words, everywhere in this universe, God does whatever He pleases. In Daniel 4.34, Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the days of his... Um, eating grass like a, a beast of the field. He says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, praised and honored Him who lives forever. Why, Nebuchadnezzar? 
for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His, his kingship is an everlasting kingship. His, his kingdom then endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings, at least in his own mind, now recognizes that the Lord himself is king of kings and he does whatever he wants on the earth. And it doesn't matter about what anyone else thinks. He does according to his will in heaven and on earth. Or Isaiah 46 verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God has a purpose and a counsel and he says he will accomplish it. Or Ephesians 1 and verse 11 says this, in him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God there is described as the one who works everything, all things, according to the counsel of His will. And all of those things that He's talking about there includes predestining some people to obtain an inheritance of eternal salvation. Again, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Why? We could say because we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And those verses together give us the sense of what it means that the, the Lord, that God, the Father, is Lord of heaven and earth. God's purpose and God's will is accomplished in both places, even in the rejection of Jesus Christ by those unbelieving cities. Even there, God's ultimate purpose and will is accomplished. And so again, Jesus says, at that time, Jesus declared, we're back in Matthew, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, we need to be careful as we interpret this because we, we could get the wrong sense here. So let's think about this. How did the Father hide these things. And then when we ask that question, you think, you go, okay, well, what are these things? And then when we, we ask that question, we might ask a question, well, who are the wise and understanding to whom these things are hidden? And so let's go through those questions. First of all, the wise and understanding are contrasted in the passage with the little children. And the little children are those who in humility have repented and become disciples of Jesus Christ. They are, we could say, the poor in spirit, Matthew 5 and verse 3. And so the wise are the proud, like those in Capernaum who thought that they would be exalted to heaven and found no place for repentance. You see, a proud heart will make excuses for sin, and that pride will keep you from humbling yourself in repentance. And so what are these things then that were hidden from these proud people? It's the things in the context, things that belong to salvation. 
The things that would have led them to repentance and faith. The things that would have delivered them from the judgment that's described in verses 20 to 24. And if we want to get really specific about these things, I think we would point to verse 27, where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And so these things are whatever things would bring someone into a saving knowledge of the Son. I think that's the the most specific that we can get here. Whatever things would bring someone into a saving knowledge of the Son, those things have been hidden. You see, they did not, the people, and, and we remember this from the last few weeks as we've been talking about this, the people did not recognize the Son as the Messiah. Now here's where we need to remember the context as we ask this question, how did the Father hide these things? Okay, how did the Father hide these things? These things were hidden right where Jesus did the most of his mighty works. It was hidden where Jesus preached the gospel. It was hidden where Jesus manifested his glory. Now, God could have hidden these things by not sending Jesus. And then it would have been really hidden. It would have been ultimately hidden. But the hiding wasn't like that. Jesus was right there doing the miracles before their very eyes. Nor are we to imagine here that God actively blinded them from seeing what was revealed. It's not as though that they would have seen and believed, but God hid the truth from them about Jesus. See, Jesus was out every day showing them who he was. And remember, these people are going to face a more severe judgment for their failure to repent. You see, they, they should have seen it. They, they did see Jesus, but they, they really refused him and rejected him. And so we're thinking about what does it mean that these things were hidden? And I probably haven't cleared it up yet for you, but let's go to the other side And I think it'll help us as we kind of consider the other side of this. It was hidden from the wise and understanding, but these things were revealed to little children. You see, the little children, they saw Jesus for who he was. They heard the same preaching again. That might remind you of 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. They heard the same preaching. They saw the same miracles, but they came to see Jesus for who he truly was. Now that truly is the active work of the Father in order that they would have this kind of spiritual vision, if we can call it that. See, the Father must reveal Jesus to the heart. The Father must open the eyes. The Father must enlighten the heart. The Father must turn on the light. And those are all just kind of different ways to speak about calling, revealing, opening the eyes, enlightening the heart taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh or even making somebody alive with Christ. Those are all different ways to talk about calling. God's call or his revealing of the son. This is a kind of a a definition that I I wrote about um, calling. God's call is a divine summons granting life to a spiritually dead sinner. And that's what we're seeing in our text. That's what Jesus is describing. Now, I want you to turn with me then to Matthew 16, where we see the same word 
reveal. And I think it's a helpful way to kind of see this. So it was hidden from some, revealed to others. What does it mean that, that it's revealed? And so look at Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Excuse me. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Simon is blessed because the father revealed the identity of Christ, the true identity of Christ to him. Now, the people were, were really all over the place as to this question of, of who is the Son of Man? Who is Jesus Christ? And like today, there was many competing opi- opinions about who Jesus is. But by grace, Peter rose above the milieu and, and, and came to the truth. And he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, how did Peter come to the knowledge of the truth? Is it because he was wiser than other people of his day? Was he more perceptive? Was he more humble than other sinners, like the, the little, like a little child? Now we know that Peter well enough, at least I think we know Peter well enough to say that he wasn't, it wasn't his incredible humility that kind of rose him above the other people. What, what was it? How did, how did Peter come to this knowledge of the truth when so many others were led astray about Jesus Christ? And Jesus attributes Peter's faith to the work of the Father. Again, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, it wasn't flesh and blood. It wasn't Peter or natural means that revealed Jesus. It was the Father who is in heaven. And Scripture everywhere asserts this very thing. For example, in Acts 16, 14, One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Or in Galatians chapter 1, and why don't you turn there with me? Go to Galatians chapter 1, and we'll see Paul's own testimony about about his own self and his own salvation. Galatians 1. Starting in verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, a a revealing of Jesus Christ. Then you skip to verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me, there's that word again, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so Paul received the gospel by a revelation, a revealing 
of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in verse 15, was set apart before birth. He was set apart before he was born. God set him apart and then God called him in time by grace because God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul. God revealed the son to Paul. That's Paul's salvation. Now this revealing is often spoken of in scripture as a seeing of Christ. And often you'll see that seeing Christ and believing Christ are parallel things. And I want you to turn to a text we've, we've looked at before I know here, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We won't do the whole thing here. I, I love really looking at verses 3 to 6, but we'll just look at chapter 4 verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, God himself shines the lights in our hearts. That's what Paul's saying. God has shown the light in our hearts. There's this internal light that happens in the heart so that we recognize the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's God turning on the light so that we can see. That's the revelation. That's the revealing that Jesus is talking about. And it's more than a mere intellectual knowledge. It's a sense in the heart of the excellency of Jesus Christ. And it's a sense in the heart that makes us want to live for Jesus Christ. That's what it means that this would be revealed to us. Or we could say that, um, we could say maybe that that sense of divine excellency makes us one of those who love God in Romans 8.28. Jonathan Edwards talks about this in a, a really good sermon that he has. And the title of it is uh, escaping me right now. I, I think it's a, something about a spiritual and divine light. But he says that, that there's a spiritual and divine light that affects our hearts and our wills and that makes us not only aware of the glory of God, not just merely aware of it intellectually, but also makes us delight in the glory of God and in the glory of His Son. And that's the idea here of, of the Father revealing these things. It's a saving revelation of Jesus Christ that causes us to love Him and love the Father who sent Him. Now, the Father owes this saving revelation to no one. It's pure grace when it's given. And if for it not to be given, it's perfectly just. God owes it to no one. And only this will remove the spiritual darkness and the hardness of our hearts. And when the Father doesn't give this divine light, He can be said to have hidden these things. And in that case, we say often theologically that God passes them by. God in perfect justice leaves some people in their sins and he doesn't give them this saving revelation of Jesus Christ. Now those people are still guilty for their rejection because they knew that God existed, but they chose to pursue sin rather than worship God. See, God doesn't force anyone to deny Christ. All he does is leave them without this revelation of his son. And when he does that, we could say that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Now, when Jesus was rejected, 
by the cities that he had done most of his mighty works in, he comforted himself that it was the Father's gracious will to have it so. And he says, yes, Father. Yes, Father, in verse 26, for such was your gracious will. And so Jesus praises God for his sovereign plan. Now, Jesus' second comfort in the midst of rejection, that was his first comfort, the Father's sovereign grace, the Father's sovereign plan. You have it in your outline there. But number two, the Father's intimate fellowship in verse 27. This is the second comfort for Jesus in the midst of rejection. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now what Jesus is saying here is that what the Father does in hiding and revealing, the Son also does. See, just as nobody knows the Son except the Father, and anyone to whom the Father would reveal Him, So no one knows the Father except the Son. And so there's this intimate, exhaustive knowledge between the members of the Trinity. No one besides God is capable of this knowledge. And Jesus takes comfort that even though others don't know Him, yet the Father does know Him. And so too, no one knows the Father except the Son. And the only way to come into this knowledge is if the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And that's very much like what we've already seen in in verse 25 and, and 26 with the Son. To know the Son, the Father must supernaturally reveal Him to the heart of people and, and open their eyes spiritually so they have this apprehension of the Son. And it works the same the other way. That's what Jesus means when He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. It's really, it's really the same as saying that, that what the Father does, the Son does as well. To know the Father, one must come through the Son. And this is why, according to God the Son, Jesus Christ, there is no salvation in any other religion apart from the Christian religion because Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Only through Jesus can one come to know the Father and be saved. And that's very much like John 14.6 where Jesus said to Philip, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In other words, if you, if you know the Son, you know the Father. If the Father has revealed the Son to you, then you're going to come to know the Father as well. Again, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So from now on, you do know Him and have seen Him. And so you see that connection again between seeing and knowing and believing. And so the Father and Son are really working together, and we could put the Holy Spirit in with all of this as well, but the Father and Son and the Spirit are working together to save sinners. And Jesus takes comfort in God's sovereign grace when He's rejected. See, to be saved, you must have this vision of Christ. The Father must reveal the Son, and then the Son will also reveal the Father. 
Now, really, all we've done here this morning is just kind of scratch the surface on some of these things. Um, for some, this is, this is a hard doctrine and maybe a hard teaching, and I would just encourage you to search the Scripture to see if these things are so. Now, you likely have questions, even, um, but they would be probably, at least in my mind, they'd be questions maybe that this text doesn't answer. But what this text does want to show us is the excellency of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone knows the Father. And the Father alone knows the Son. And by grace, the Father reveals the Son so that we can see Him and delight in Him. This is what salvation is. And if you have this spiritual vision of Christ, this this not just knowledge of His glory, but even a delight in His glory and in a, a delight in the, in the glory of the Father and a desire from that delight to live for Him and serve Him and love Him. That is salvation. That's, that means you've been called by His grace and you have been saved. And so if you find pleasure in knowing Jesus Christ and knowing the Father, this is the saving faith that Scripture talks about. And so for you... I would encourage you this morning to praise God for opening your eyes and revealing His Son to you because only the Father can do that in your life. And so praise God for opening your eyes, for saving you, and for revealing His Son. And if you don't have that, if you don't, if you don't know this, then I would encourage you to call on the name of the Lord that you may see the Son and believe in Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time and your word this morning. And I just pray you'd help my, my brothers and sisters to understand some of these um, difficult doctrines and teachings. I pray that you would comfort anyone who's shaken by these things. Pray that all of us would be built up in your truth. And that we would praise you for your great salvation, for the way that you have worked in our lives. Because of you, Father, we are in Christ Jesus. Because of you, our eyes are open to see the glory of your Son. You have revealed him to us, and we thank you for that, Father. And we, we thank you to the Son for also revealing the Father to us. Father, we pray that you would reveal these things to all of us that You would reveal these things to our community, that You would save our community by Your powerful saving grace, that You would call many to salvation, deliver them from their sins, deliver them from their dreadful state that they're in, a state of hating You and hostility against You. And we pray that You would save by Your mighty Gospel and by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.